chapter 12 this morning. <clears throat> we'll be starting in verse 14. We're studying through verse 17 this morning. Let's have a word of prayer to start, and then we will spend some time in the Word. Lord, help us this morning as we consider this text, <coughs> this um, this text that challenges us to examine ourselves and to see where we stand and to see what the evidence is of your Spirit in, in us and the direction we should be focused on. So help us to be able to see it in, in its entirety and to see ourselves in light of the text. Lord, more than anything else, help us to see you. And uh, in seeing you, help us to worship you and long for you, as we've been singing about this morning. And long for your praise to abound and people to worship you. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. Today's text is an interesting text. <coughs> Again, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. A- every text, obviously, is an interesting text. Uh, it is the scriptures. Um, but as I was reviewing the text this week, one of the things that was was uh, a reminder to me is the idea that when we study the scriptures, we need to be studying the scriptures from two perspectives, <coughs> really three. Uh, the first perspective is the nearest perspective. What does the text actually say? It's an important, important thing to wrestle with. What does the text itself actually say? But we also need to be thinking about the text in light of its immediate context, both near and far immediate context, that is the entirety of the book that it's in. But then we also need to be thinking about the text in light of the grand sweep of what I call, and other people have called, the um, historical redemptive story of the entirety of all 66 of the books of the Bible. How does this verse, what does the verse say? How does it fit into the book it actually is in, near the verses right around it, the entire book? And then lastly, how does it fit into the whole story? Because it is one unified story. And the reason why I bring that up is because there are several statements in the text this morning that if we don't do that, we will fail miserably. In fact, it showed up in our Sunday school hour as we were in Romans this morning, for those of you who were there. Um, And it's a direct correlation to today's text. Let me just start off by just reading the text to you, and then we're going to see how that works. Starting in verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And the text has a very strong warning in it. It's important that we will recognize that. It's very strong. As a matter of fact, there's not just a very obvious warning at the very end. But there's warnings in the midst of it. At the same time, every step of the way, there are warnings. Some are more veiled than others, but the warnings are there. Um, There is also, obviously, this text is a laundry list of commands. It's important that we see that. There's a laundry list of commands that are here for a follower of Jesus Christ to follow. Commands to be obeyed. There's no question. We certainly don't want to minimize that either. But the, the, the passage demands an understanding of context. The reason why I bring this up is, <coughs> firstly, because the text demands it. It's easy to get, get sidetracked, which we'll see in just a moment. But this week I had several conversations with people. One was on Facebook. Another one was face-to-face. <coughs> and it was interesting to see people taking verses dramatically out of their context and running with what the verse said without the story around it. Have you, has, has that ever happened to you, by the way, where you've, made, you've been involved in a conversation with somebody and they, they just cherry-pick a phrase or a sentence you, you used and they run with it? Has that ever happened to you? Well, we've all done it. 
but we don't remember the, typically the things we've done. We remember what people have done to us, right? I saw several of you, Stephanie, I'm not going to call you out, but I saw Stephanie saying, yeah, that happens. It happens at work all the time, doesn't it? I mean, it's all the time. I bet if, if you think about it, the teachers in our midst, I bet you they might. It happens to you all the time. The students do it, don't they? They hear one little thing, and off they go. Sammy and Mike's going, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It happens all. You say, you say 20 sentences, they hear one, and they run with it out of its context, right? It happens all the time. You probably see it at work all the time, don't you? Andrew, you see it all the time, don't you? <coughs> it does. Hey, those of you who have raised kids or are in the middle of raising, you see it, right? I mean, you're, you're raising kids, and, and the, pa- the, the kid hears one thing the parent says and ignores everything else because that one thing works for them, and off they go. And it's not what was intended. Now, I know, Jim, your kids never did that. Never. Absolutely not. They sat at your feet like and just absorbed it all, didn't they? Right, ladies? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. It's the way of things. It's the way of humanity. It, it was stunning to me this week, though, especially this Facebook conversation I had um, that w- went on for quite a while. Um, it was stunning how grotesquely abused the scripture became as the conversation continued to get worse and worse. Not worse as in more vitriol, but worse and worse in the handling of the scriptures. It was just stunning to see how more and more I was just spending my time explaining context of the text that were being said. And and not just the context of the text immediate near and far, but the storyline of the scriptures as well. Like these people who claim to be believers, and just for way of context, they're some of my ex-students, were just all over the map, missing the storyline of the scriptures, missing the immediate context, and running with, the, with this, these ideas that were basically being driven by what they wanted the text to say. They wanted the scripture to say this. And it was, the, the ignorance was stunning. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just a stunning thing. And no matter what I said, it was like, as I describe it, it was like throwing a ping pong ball against a titanium wall and hoping that it would knock the wall over. It was having absolutely no success, no, no, no response. It, it was like the spirit was not at work. Scary. I'm sorry? Yeah, really. It was scary to me to see it in, in, in that much gore, if I may use that term. Biblical gore was horrifying. We find the potential for that here in the text, and that's why I bring that up, because I want to, to help us understand these texts, because they're actually what's interesting, especially verse 14, it's 180 degrees. The true understanding of verse 14 is going to be 180 degrees over a natural understanding of the text. And I think you're going to see that as we go through it. <coughs> so let's read it. We already read it, but go back to verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The first phrase is what? Pursue or strive for peace with everyone. Now, <coughs> you hear the verse, the phrase of this verse, verse 14, pursue or strive for peace with everyone. And the initial thought, if we're thinking the way a lot of people would think, outside of its context, outside of the near and far context, as well as the sweep of the entirety of scriptures, you hear strive for peace with everyone, and you hear what? We should not be arguing. We should not be, help me, anything else. Judgmental. We should what? Add something else in. We should not confront. What else? Anybody? No conflict? Avoid all conflict? I mean, isn't that what it sounds like? Strive for peace with everyone. I want you to understand something. The text is 180 degrees out of phase with that. The truth of the text is 180 degrees out of phase with what we just said is the typical way of thinking. And I say it because I hear this all the time. 
about this verse and other verses that talk about peace. This text is not saying there should be no conflict. This text is not saying at all any of the things that we said is typically the way it should be. First of all, I want you to notice the very first word tells us that. Strive. <laughs> or what does your text say? Pursue. Strive is probably, what does the King James say? Follow. The idea is aggressive. So if you want to say pursue or follow, they're fine words, they're fine translations, but it, think about it from the perspective of aggressively follow or aggressively pursue. The word strive captures the idea as well. Striving sounds like what? When you hear the word strive after something, what does it sound like you're doing? What? You're working hard, right? Good. What else? You're straining, fighting for it. It's pretty aggressive, isn't it? This is not casual. This is really aggressive, and there's a lot of activity going on, right? You're very active at this. So strive, even the very word strive or aggressively follow, Jim, aggressively follow, aggressively pursue, be after it. It, it flies in the face of, of this idea of, of no conflict, no difficulty, no disagreement. It flies directly to the because there's no striving if everybody's like that, right? If there's no conflict, there's no striving. But the implication is there's a problem. That's the initial implication, right? You don't strive after something that's not a problem, something that's easy. You aggressively pursue something because that thing isn't there. So how do you, it begs the question, how do you get something that's not there? Especially this idea of peace. Well, in the, in the storyline of Hebrews, near and far, we find very clearly what he's talking about. When he says, strive after peace with everyone, first thing we can say is somehow striving after peace involves, ready for this, adding to the conflict, adding to the problem. It does. If I'm not at peace with someone else, the idea biblically here in, in striving after peace with everyone, or striving for peace with everyone, involves this idea of adding to whatever it is that results in no peace. How do you say that, Steve? Well, it's actually kind of easy if you really think through the storyline of Hebrews. Let me just talk about what the writer of Hebrews did. He started out by talking about what? The supremacy of Jesus Christ. And why did he start talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Outside of the fact, we know. I'll give this one to you. This is the easy one because he's supreme. Okay, so we'll, we'll take that one. But why else does he go after, in the very beginning, the supremacy of Jesus Christ? To teach and explain about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Okay, to show the contrast, it's true. What else? What? Because they've forgotten it. I mean, it's right there in Hebrews 12, right? They've forgotten. Right in the very beginning, like verse 4, 5, something like that. They've forgotten. The admonition of the Lord, which ties all the way back to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So, and, and, and then you, you add in, what does he say? Dull hearing, hard hearts, cold hearts, correct? Toward what? Toward the supremacy of Jesus. And so what is, what is the writer of Hebrews doing right in the beginning and all the way through? That's true. He's building a foundation, but he's adding in something that's doing what? Creating less peace. Isn't he? If they don't believe the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and we follow our normal way of thinking about strive after peace with everyone, if I'm with a bunch of people who don't, believe in or embrace or have forgotten about the supremacy of Christ because they've got dull hearing, hard hearts, cold hearts, if I'm supposed to strive after peace with everything, that the natural way is for me not to talk about the supremacy of Christ. Doesn't that make sense? That's the, that, that's the way it works. Don't talk about it then. If nobody else remembers it, if everybody else has forgotten it, nobody else is embracing it, just don't talk about it. But what does the writer of Hebrews do? He's unrelenting. 
isn't he? He is unrelentingly talking about the supremacy of Christ. And in the midst of talking about the supremacy of Christ, he adds another thing that removes peace, doesn't he? What does he add? He adds this very idea we've just been talking about. You've forgotten. Isn't that what he does? And then he makes accusations. Right? He makes accusations. You've forgotten because you have, we just said it, hard heart, cold heart, dull hearing. That's, that doesn't add to peace, does it? Not the way we naturally think about it. It doesn't add to peace. And then he goes beyond that even. Because what does he do after he talks about the cold heart, hard heart, and, and, and dull hearing, and in the midst of it all, he does what? He talks about if you remain in that position, what? If you remain like that, you're hellbound. That doesn't sound like it's adding to peace. That doesn't sound like it's, it's, it's striving after peace, does it? That's just more conflict, isn't it? He's just adding more and more and more and more conflict in the midst. And after 12 or 11 and a half chapters, and then he goes to chapter 11, by the way, and says, by the way, y'all say you have faith. This is what faith looks like. Is that you? I mean, that, that's even more conflict, isn't it? That's even more removal of peace. And after 11 and a half chapters of this, he does what? He says, strive after peace with everyone. And somehow we take that passage out of the context flow, right? And we say, well, we just got to try to be at peace with each other. Well, that's not what he's talking about. Take it back one step further before we talk about what he's talking about. Move it outside of Hebrews for a second. Can I just ask you a quick question? We've got 66 books of the Bible with however many writers there are. I know one person probably knows. You don't know? Wow. Charles will know by tonight. <laughs> <laughs> however many writers there are, 35, 34, something like that. <coughs> Which one of those writers didn't add conflict? Any of them? In their writings, did any of them not add conflict? Oh, no, they all added conflict, right? There's more conflict added every single time, every single book. Why? Because every book is doing what? They're doing basically the same thing Hebrews is doing, aren't they? Every writer of every book is always calling the reader back to Jesus. And I chose those words very carefully. They're all calling us back to because we have a to forget. We have a tendency to walk another direction. And so it's constantly calling us back, calling us back, calling us back, calling us back from, and let's add to it, calling us back from other things that we love that we shouldn't love. Or to use a different term, they're constantly calling us back from digging cisterns that can hold no water, to quote Jeremiah. Isn't that what the writers of, he of, of, of the, all the scriptures are doing? Because we constantly are finding ourselves grabbing shovels, digging cisterns that can hold no water. Rusty, you were going to say, you were about to say something. Yeah, calling us back to repent and believe. Repent from what? Things we love that we shouldn't love. That's by nature going to cause conflict, or to use this term, lack of peace one with another, right? By nature it's going to. It's going to create war. So you see this everywhere, near context, far context. We could talk a lot more about that, but I don't, I don't want to right now. You can let your mind run after the service as you review. Near context, far context, and even the most far, the entire sweep of the historical redemptive story. And what is he talking about when he says strive for peace with everyone? Well, it's pretty simple when you really think about the book itself. When is there peace with others? Well, the answer is pretty, pretty clear. 
if I may just use Rusty and I as an example. If Rusty and I are hanging out, and Rusty, for Rusty at this point in time, Rusty is just loving, just reveling in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He's just totally caught up in it. He's just worshiping. He's just enthralled with the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And here I come over to Rusty's house, and we're hanging out, and we're talking, and it becomes pretty evident for Rusty that Steve is not caught up in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. What should Rusty do? Call me to repentance, right? And remind me of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And try to draw me in so that together we could what? Revel in worshiping the Christ who is supreme, right? Now, if Rusty does that, does that cause peace? No, it causes conflict, right? We're at war with one another. This is positional almost, isn't it? We were talking about that in the Sunday school hour. We're not talking about feelings. That's secondary if at best. We're talking about reality, position. We're not acting like we're on the same side. He's got a hot heart for Christ. i got a cold heart. My heart's hot for something else. There's war here. There shouldn't be. If I'm grafted in the same vine he's grafted in, there shouldn't be war, right? There absolutely should not be. We should be at fellowship with one another because we're both in fellowship with Jesus. He's the vine. And I'm living life, or he's living life at this point, that the vine is supreme, not the branch. But I'm living life right now that something else is supreme. The vine's not. That's conflict, gross conflict. So what does Rusty do? If he's viewing Christ as supreme, he begins to strive. Doesn't he? Aggressively pursue something. What, should, what does he aggressively pursue? Me. In what way? He begins to aggressively pursue, strivingly pursue, helping me what? Pursue Christ. So he begins to aggressively pursue what he is aggressively pursuing. But in this case, Christ in me, he's pursuing Christ himself, and he says, Steve, whoa, let's go. The only way there's going to be peace here is what? If I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, believe and repent, right? Or repent and believe, and together then we do what? Pursue the supremacy of Christ. And we have peace. That's what he's talking about here. The call here is for the reader not just to say, I got to make sure I'm at peace. So, you know, I come to, I, I come, I'm hanging out with Charles, and Charles starts talking about his Samsung phone, and, and I have my, my, or whatever you have. Well, I can't even pronounce it. Um, and, and, and I have my iPhone, and he disagrees. He thinks iPhones are junks, and he, he thinks this is great, and, and well, I just got to say, okay, yeah, that's great. That's great, Charles. Now we have peace. No. Who cares about what phone, right? And she's using that as an example. Who cares? Meaningless. Irrelevant. Quite to the contrary, it's all about striving for peace and actually creating more conflict. Not over phones, over the only thing that's supreme. Because whether you have, excuse me, illustration, whether you have an iPhone or if you have a, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, or that, where it's all going to end up in the dump, isn't it? Right? Isn't it? It's maybe one will end up quicker than the other one. Who cares? It's all going to end up in the dump, in landfill. We fight over crazy things, but when it comes to the supremacy of Christ, He's saying aggressively pursue, strive after what that Charles and Steve are at peace 
Christ and in Christ. Strive after it with everyone. By the way, did you get the last word? What's the last word in that phrase? That's a huge word, isn't it? What does it say? Strive for peace with all men or everyone. You know what that means? This is radical. The writer of Hebrews, by the, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is giving us an inspired word of God, saying to you and I, if I may go back way back about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, to my friend from Indiana that spoke here, when he said you can't just, maybe remember, eat your sandwich. You just can't eat your lunch. That's what he said. You just can't eat your lunch. Why? Because everything is either about the supremacy, when it comes to lunch, it's about the supremacy of the sandwich, or it's about the supremacy of Christ. You realize that? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, strive after peace with everyone. Do you know what it's really saying? It's saying if we have these extended conversations with each other, and I use, I'm being gracious saying extended, if we have extended conversations with each other, and Christ never comes into the picture, you know what that means? It says something about us. Do you realize that? I, I'm just trying to help us all understand this. It says something about us. And our view of the supremacy of Christ. It doesn't mean I've got to get out there and try better to tell people about Jesus and to minister to believers about Jesus. That's not what it means. Doesn't mean I got to have a better checklist where I'm checking off how many people I talk to about Jesus. Quite to the contrary. What it's saying is when I'm not having, if, when I'm having these extended conversations with people and Jesus isn't present in there, it says something about me. It says about me that what? What do you think? That Christ isn't supreme for me, in my mind, in my life, in my heart. Christ isn't supreme, which means I need to repent of my hard-heartedness, cold-heartedness, dull hearing, right? And cry out to the Lord to change my heart, because he, he can do that. And the evidence, if I may say it this way, the evidence that my heart is being changed is what? I find myself striving for peace. But a peace that is restorative to people, to one another, that points to Jesus. It's a peace. Because that's when I have peace. I have peace with someone when I have an agreement with them about what's supreme. And we all know that. Don't we? We all know that. We get into arguments and it never gets re resolved. There's no peace. We know that. Whether it's a horizontal argument or vertical argument, we know that. There's no peace. We strive after it. We all know how to strive after it. If you're living and breathing, you know how to strive after it. Because we all do it. It's just a matter of what it is that we're striving after for peace. But his argument here, I would argue when he says, strive after peace with everyone, is a focus on Jesus Christ so that I can have peace with others around me, whether it's a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, a, a, a loved one, a neighbor, whoever it may be. So they love Jesus. So that Jesus is supreme. And you know what? If they're not interested in Christ being supreme... I'm okay with no peace. I must be. I have to acknowledge that the scriptures tell us something. The for example, with regard to the lost world, the world hated who? Christ. So of course they're going to hate his followers. But you know what? They're not going to hate his followers if we're not people who see him as supreme. You know, there's something really odd about Christians who fly under the radar screen. And the world loves us. Something odd about that. 
something very strange. I'm not saying we should go out there and get them to hate us. But if Christ is going to su- be supreme and they don't love Jesus, they're going to hate you. It's the nature of the beast. It really is. Is it any wonder Jesus said count the cost? <laughs> so we strive for peace, recognizing that ultimately what's going to happen? He didn't say accomplish peace, did he? Ultimately, there's going to be what? More conflict and more hatred. If you don't believe that, let's look at the greater sweep of scriptures again. What did Stephen say to the Pharisees? Or not to the Pharisees, but to the Jewish rulers. Pharisees were probably part of it. What did Stephen say in Acts chapter 7? As he was drug in front of them, what did he say? He said to them, which one of the prophets, what? Didn't you kill? Sounds like the prophets went through some conflict calling for peace, right? Striving for peace. Does it sound like they went through conflict? Old Testament, which one of those didn't you kill? And the obvious answer is, you killed all of them. Come in the New Testament. How about those apostles? How'd they do? Oh, and by the way, not just with the world, right? We understand the world hated them. You see that throughout the epistles, right, in the book of Acts? Pretty clear. How'd Paul do with regard to the church? Not very well. Yeah, at the end, they all left him. 2 Timothy 4, you're absolutely right, Rusty. In the middle of it, he's writing, for example, 2 Corinthians to the Corinthian church who is rejecting him as a true apostle and calling him a thief. That's what 2 Corinthians is written into. Just as an example. And just about every single one of the epistles that are written are writing into people who are rejecting the apostles' message. In the church. And then what does Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Hey, Timothy, in in the last days, difficult times will come in the church when people will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, arrogant, and on, and lovers of money rather than lovers of God. This is in the church. And it goes on and on for nine verses. He says, but you, however, cling to what you've learned, what you've taught since, since childhood. Even if you're all alone, Timothy, cling to that. And then he goes into chapter four, and he says what? Preach the word, be added in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and, and teaching. Because there's going to come a time when people will not receive sound teaching, but instead will gather people to tickle their ears. Can you hear conflict? It's everywhere. All throughout the scriptures. And then read, read uh, Revelation 2 and 3. The churches, the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. You've got one church that's doing really well. Other than that, all the churches are amazingly in conflict and coming apart at the seams. It's stunning to see the vista. And in the midst of all that is a strive for peace with everyone. And what does he mean? Well, one of the, one of the churches in, in Revelation makes it very clear. Stir up what remains. Now, there's a few embers Stir them up. Strive for peace with everyone. He goes on in verse 14, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's just a continuing thing here. Strive for peace and strive for holiness are just two different ways of looking at the same coin. It's two different sides of the same coin. What he's really saying is strive for peace and holiness. When will we have peace, in other words? When we have holiness. That's what he says. Strive for peace and holiness. It's, 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 it's an equation almost. It's strive for peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. Peace and holiness. What's holiness? Set apartness for God. Strive for that in yourself and in others. 
without which, you, and the big emphasis here is not in yourself, it's in others. The implication is that first you're obviously striving for it in your own life, but strive for it in other people's lives. That's the point of the text, because we are a community together. He says, strive for peace, strive for holiness, strive that people, strive after helping one another to be set apart as holy, dedicated unto God. That's the point. Holy, in that case, I'm using not holy as H-O-L, but W-H-O-L. Why? Two L's. Holy. You get the idea. I'm looking over here at our English teacher, and he's just like, sure. Huh? Yeah, no, W-H-O, like whole, as in I'm whole. Whatever it is. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not an English major. Putting pressure on there. I know, it's summertime. <laughs> but the picture is all of us that we're after something. We're after holy, H-O-L-I, each other's life. We're after it and unrelentingly after it. As if we can possibly be complete in holiness, which obviously we cannot decide of glory, right? But we're in pursuit of that in our own lives and in each other's lives. What does he say? Without which, what? What does it say? No one will see God. What does that mean? You're not going to heaven without it. You're not going to heaven without that. This is a shocking statement. But again, in the sweep of, uh, of the storyline, how is this possible? Who really produces holiness in my life? Who does it? The Holy Spirit does, right? The Holy Spirit is at work in me, right? What does the Bible say? That's I mean, Philippians, what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is he who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work, yes, but we work because he works. You've heard me say that many times. We work because he works. And the primary worker is the Holy Spirit. He's the primary worker in our lives. At the same time, God uses means. And so he says here, in effect, the implication and the referencing back and forth in the Scripture is this. If God has begun, he'll continue to do it, right? Philippians 1. So, God using means, he's saying, strive in each other's lives. Speak into each other's lives. Challenge each other. Help each other. Minister to one another to produce peace as a result as we both love God, as we all love God together. <coughs> and holiness that ultimately is only done by the Spirit, but he uses means in that process. And the means he's describing here is you and I. And without the holiness that the Holy Spirit produces... We'll see God. Understand the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately produces holiness. I wonder, just a thought. I wonder if we'd minister more effectively to one another if we actually ministered to one another. Now what I mean by that, if we really minister to one another, what do we think we're going to discover pretty quickly? If we really minister to one another, what would we discover pretty quickly? Well, we discover we haven't been. That's true, but what else? We, we're all missing the mark. Yes, what else? That's true. Absolutely. We'll, we'll discover that real quickly, won't we? Absolutely. What else? We'll start to discover where people actually are instead of assuming, Right? See, isn't that, isn't that the bane of Christianity? We assume where people are. We assume where people are in relation to God. We make assumptions all the time. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but in either case, whether we assume too much or assume too little, once the assumption is made, we're done. There was no ministry that took place. 
done. They don't take a next step. You think ministry would be effect more effective if we actually ministered? Because then as we ministered to people, we would discover something, right? We discover where people really are spiritually. We discover if Christ really is supreme in them. We discover if they really do love Jesus. And you know what will happen? As we begin to take the lead that we see, whoa, as I brought the subject up, there's, there's no peace. Is that what I'm going to discover? If I start speaking to someone's life and Christ isn't supreme, if Christ isn't supreme in them and at the current time I'm finding that I'm really in love with Jesus and enthralled with Jesus and I'm just worshiping Jesus and, 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 and I, 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 I'm striving after him being supreme in my life, but I'm, I'm trying to minister to this person and there's, there's no peace, there's conflict. What does that tell me? Christ isn't supreme. At this moment in time, I'm not talking about grand sweep. At this moment in time, Christ isn't supreme. Conflict, now I know my ministry. God has given me a vital ministry right here, right now. Now the striving begins. Doesn't it? But it's driven by Christ supreme. And a little bit, it may totally reverse, right? Where that person now, Christ is supreme, and for me it's not. And now there's no conflict from me to him. My wrong, my in error. And he's got to strive in my life. And before you know it, what starts happening? Well, several things start happening. And some of them don't look good in the beginning. Because you know what happens? Initially, what do you think happens initially when that starts to happen? Okay, you start to get some hatred, don't you? Conflict is flaring, right? And what do people do typically? What? They avoid each other. And after avoiding each other for a little while, in a little church like us especially, what begins to happen? It's inevitable. What? Suddenly, people start leaving. That's, that's what happens. And it's not just a little church. It happens in big church. It happens everywhere. In my 59 and a half years of life, I've seen it happen both in my life as well as in other people's lives many times where someone gets caught up with Jesus, enthralled with Jesus, and they begin to call other people to Jesus. And next thing you know, everybody's going outdoor, out the back doors. Whether it's in church or just in relationships in general, people are peeling away. And initial looks, those people who are peeling away, they look like they love Jesus, maybe. But we assume that they love Jesus. I'm not saying everybody who leaves the church is that. I'm not saying that. Please don't. Again, going back to what we said, we hear what we want to hear. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I find it stunning how often when ministry actually does start to happen, that's exactly what happens. Conflict. Exit stage left, avoid, run away, go elsewhere. Happens. Now, some people just are obnoxious about it. You know, they just they just obnoxiously irritate people. That's a whole different issue. That's not what I'm talking about here. But you know what happens for some because the spirit is at work in their life? You know what begins to happen? The light of Jesus Christ begins to blaze because the Spirit's at work in them. That's what begins to happen. Before you know it, <coughs> you have people like Paul saying to Timothy, I have no one else like you. My Timothy. Because Paul and Timothy were united in Christ. That's what begins to happen. You may have conflict initially like Paul and John Mark. <laughs> Correct? And later on a restoration when Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, send, send John Mark to me because he is so valuable. 
Why is John Mark so valuable? Because Christ is supreme in him. But too often, what we have, and I'll just be blunt with you, too often what we have is what somebody quoted from 2 Timothy chapter 4, Rusty, I think you did. Everyone's left me, Paul said. <laughs> when, I, when I was in the most dire straits, with the highest consequences, everybody left me. And too often what we have is people who leave, and it's interesting in 2 Timothy because you have the people that were at one point ministering to him left him at the worst time, and then he also talks about the, how, how the entire church in Asia left him. If you don't think it's an epidemic, you haven't read 2 Timothy chapter 4. The entire Asian church left Paul. And then you have, and that doesn't mean they left what, what, what we would generally call Christianity, but they left Pauline truth. And then you have people like Demas, who left Paul because he loved the present world. He ceased even pretending like acting like because he agape, he covenanted with the present world. These are all different categories. But you will have some, like Timothy, who become enthralled with Jesus. And you will have peace. See, we strive for peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But the reality is, most will not want peace. Most will not want holiness. In a fallen world. But some will. Those who are saved, the faithful remnant, they will. And when they do, there is a bond there like nothing you will ever understand. Because it's all part of the covenant. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, verse 15, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do you hear the striving there again? See to it. What does your translation say? Verse 15, the opening of 15. See to it. Does your say anything different? Looking, I like that. Looking diligently. See to it. Focus on it diligently. What? Verse 15 again that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That the idea of obtaining is not that I can gain it. The idea is that it has its effect. See to it that no one in your purview miss out. What is, what, what, what is it again, Jim? How's, it, how's the King James put it? Looking diligently, looking after it diligently aggressively, diligently, and diligently has the idea of all the time, doesn't it? All the time. Is this person, it, it starts out with a question. I mean, if we want to make it really functional and practical, it starts out with a question. Is this person missing out on grace? <laughs> Is he missing out on the blessings of God's grace? Does he not comprehend it? Is it not having its effect in his life, in her life? Is it not functioning? Or functioning correctly. Is something missing here? That's the idea. Look diligently after that. And then he clarifies it even further. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, <coughs> that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. <coughs> Grace of God does not result in bitterness. It never does. Bitterness, and, and, and the writer of Hebrews presents it very broad brushedly. Is that the word? <coughs> no root of bitterness. Yes. Well, it could be either one. It could be either one. A bitterness. What, what, what does your King James say? Yeah, 
Ajá. Cer certainly, absolutely, it's us, but also the idea is I if you get bitter, it troubles me too. Right? Because it, it, it creates more conflict here this way. So it could be, it could be me or in you. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. But in context, again, though, Jim, if you look at it, in context, it's tied directly to um, this idea of see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And in context, the big flow is if we, if, if we go all the way back to verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness for which no one will see the Lord, including me, no one else as well, see that no one, no one, anyone, not just me, but no one fails to obtain the grace, uh, uh, the grace of God, and that no bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So it includes me, but it also includes everyone else as well. So it could be bitterness in me, it could be bitterness in someone else. In either case, it affects us. In either way, it affects us. So it could go both ways. Okay? But the idea is that one of the, the idea of verse 15 is when the grace of God is at work in someone, what is going to be absent? Bitterness. Bitterness will be absent. When great, the grace of God is not at work at somebody, one of the evidences, not the only evidence, but one of the evidences of that is bitterness. Bitterness. And it's not necessarily bitterness against God, although it is, because ultimately God is always what? First cause. Do you ever find somebody to be a believer, but they're bitter at their circumstance? For example, the situation they find themselves in? Not just bitterness at a person, but bitterness at a situation? Bitterness is bitterness. Who is the first cause of the situation we find ourselves in? What did Joseph say? You meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. First cause. He's not reactionary. He's first cause. So when I'm bitty, bitter at my circumstance, I'm bitter at God. So it may be a person, bitterness towards a person. <clears throat> Maybe they could have said something differently. You ever been in a situation where someone says truth to you, but they could have said it a little differently? You ever been there? I have. In fact, I've probably been the person who said it in a way I shouldn't have. To some of you. Linda's over saying yeah. <laughs> it's okay, Linda. I'm bitter. No. Um, <laughs> no, but we could say something wrongly. It's the right thing, but we say it the wrong way or at the wrong time. That ever happened to you? Of course it does. You know what bitterness looks like? Rejecting the message because you don't like the way it came. That's bitterness. You don't like the way it was presented. That's bitterness. So you reject the message because you don't like the method. I find that and we do that, don't we? I find that interesting. I find it interesting that I will somehow excuse the message because I don't like the messenger. I don't like the way the messenger gave it to me. We deny the fact that the messenger is flawed. He's imperfect. But we just what it really is, it's just an excuse because we really don't want the, the message. We just don't want the message. And so we are bitter. We become bitter. And what does he say here in verse 7 and 15? That no root of bitterness springs up and does what? Causes trouble. And by many become defiled. How do many become defiled if I get a little bitterness in me? It's isolated, right? It's only this one little spot. How, how, does, how does that bitterness defile many? Well, it's easy. What happens? It says it springs up, which implies what? It's quick. And causes trouble... Because bitterness can't remain isolated. It's like a weed. That's the idea it's presented here, right? It's like a weed. It spreads. 
It springs up and causes trouble. And what happens? What does it say? Many become defiled. How does that happen? Because if I get bitter, as someone who claims to be a Christian, if I get bitter about a circumstance or about a situation or about someone, what happens? In me first. Christ is no longer supreme. Quite to the contrary, something else is. And inevitably, once something else is, what do I start doing? I start trumpeting what? What is supreme? And it happens quickly, it says. And I begin to trumpet what is supreme. And as I trumpet what is supreme, in my bitterness, I am inviting others to embrace the thing that I hold supreme. And many become defiled. That's exactly what happens. So if I could present it this way, what, what the writer of Hebrews is really saying is Christ, either Christ is going to be supreme and we'll be, we'll be, we'll be pursuing Christ and, and, and all the other people's lives pursuing Christ or we will be doing what? Spread our bitterness. And, and encouraging and, if I use the term, ministering to others away from Christ towards something else that we see as supreme. That is pure, simple bitterness. And we don't realize what we're really doing is we're trying to help people not see God. That's what the text says. Won't see God without holiness. Then he goes on, verse 16, that no one, this is all one big long flow, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I just want to stop on that for a second. This is dramatic. We all know the story of Esau, I hope. If you don't, you can look back at the Old Testament and learn about it. For sake of time, let me just assume that you know it. <coughs> what Esau basically said, if I may just give a synopsis, is he was hungry. And he said, I really want a bowl of porridge. That oatmeal, as it were. Now, the story is much bigger than this. But he traded his inheritance for a bowl of oatmeal. And we look at that and say, man, that's really stupid. Isn't it? Isn't it easy to look at that and say, that's really stupid? I mean, can you be more stupid than, than Esau? No, you can't. He was the most stupid person there is. Oatmeal? For inheritance? That's pretty stupid. It is interesting he throws sexual immorality into the mix because Esau wasn't sexually immoral in this storyline. It was oatmeal. But he throws sexual immorality into the package. Why? Because it's a great illustration of what he's talking about. We'll trade sexual immorality. Let me be blunt. We'll trade 15 minutes or so, of pleasure will trade our inheritance for that. That's what he's talking about. Don't be like Esau. That's what he's saying. This is who Esau was. And he says in the passage that no one is sexual immorality or unholy. So Unholy and sexual immorality go hand in glove, like Esau, who did what? Sold his birthright for a single meal. This folds 14 all the way through. It means, what is Esau striving after? Is he striving after peace with everyone? No. Was he striving after holiness? No. Was he striving after obtaining the grace of God? No. Was there bitterness? My yes. Don't be like Esau. Now, again, this is not, come on, guys, let's be more like, like Jacob, not Esau. No, that's not what it is. He's saying, basically, I want you to understand how stupid it is when we cling to other things as supreme. That's what he's basically saying. This is a great picture of what it looks like 
to cling to the wrong thing is to fail. And I love the picture of inheritance oatmeal because what does the scripture say? We've been given an inheritance. Jesus won, right? It's uncorruptible, undefiled, and reserved in heaven for you. We've been given an inheritance. And who is the rightful heir of the inheritance? Jesus Christ is. By his grace and mercy, grace, right in the text, he has shared, he's promised to share his inheritance with you and me. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. We bring nothing to the table except for our sin. But he has agreed to share his inheritance with the adopted sons. That's all of us who are believers. When Christ is not supreme, we're saying, I'd rather have the oatmeal. That's what we're saying. Now, I know none of us struggle with wanting the oatmeal right. This is where the whole text comes in. We all struggle. We want the oatmeal. We all do. And the way God has designed for us to be rescued from pursuing oatmeal is to have one another come into our lives and say, hey, hey, Charles, I want to remind you not just of the inheritance. I want to remind you of the one the inheritance belongs to. I want to remind you of how great the true inheritor is and how amazing his mercy towards you and I are. It's breathtaking. It's stunning to think about it that way. Because I need to be reminded because I get distracted by oatmeal. I need to be reminded because oatmeal sometimes looks really good to me, metaphorically speaking. And even real, I like oatmeal. these things look really good. And I need to be reminded always of the supremacy of Jesus over all the other things that are just oatmeal. Because the ramifications of, being getting, of getting caught up in oatmeal is stunning in the scriptures. Even in this text it is. Because right after that, what does he say? For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he thought it with tears. You know what the veiled warning in the text is? Somewhat veiled. If we continue to pursue oatmeal, there's going to come a point in time when repentance is not available. And all left with is oatmeal. And you discover that oatmeal doesn't satisfy. And you're condemned. And oatmeal certainly doesn't save. even if you speak it with tears. That's a horrifying statement. Horrifying. Now you could argue, well, that only comes about after, after you're dead, right? Well, not according to this text. It sounds to me like Esau didn't, didn't seek it with tears after he died. Did he? He was still alive when he was seeking it. I would argue this implication of this text is there comes a time in, in someone's life when even if they start to seek it with tears, they may not get saved. The warning is pretty strong. Scriptures do talk about people who have tears of sorrow, but it's the world's sorrow. James talks about that pretty strongly. The warning is, seek to be at peace. Strive for that with everyone. In Christ, vertical. Be after holiness, vertically, in yourself and others. Today. And ultimately, it all is encapsulated by pursue the supremacy of Jesus, by his grace. Know Jesus. I just say this in closing? I guarantee you this, not because I guarantee it because I've experienced it, because this is what the scriptures say. When you pursue Christ as supreme, your heart is going to be inflamed with the one who is supreme. God promises that. If we seek him with all our heart, what's going to happen? We'll find him. Our hearts will be inflamed with him. You know what's going to happen? 
It's a flame that cannot be contained. The result of that is, you know what's going to happen for you and me? We will minister to people. We will find ourselves wading in. We will find ourselves engaging in spiritual battles, pursuing Christ in others, reminding each other of the beauty of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. And you won't be able to stop it. Because it will become who you are. Because, as Paul said, because the love of Christ will control you. And elsewhere, Paul says, because the fear of the Lord, because he knows the fear of the Lord, he does what? He persuades men. Man, the text is pretty clear. As you learn about the supremacy of Jesus, you will find yourself driven, impelled to proclaim him. Buckle your seatbelt. You'll be transformed. And you will minister Jesus. It'll happen. Powerful. Dramatic. Breathtaking, that is. And you'll pay a price. You will. You will pay a price. But you will say with Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, these light momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the vast weight of glory. That's what you'll say. And you'll believe it. You'll embrace it. Because you just want more of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. As we studied Hebrews, I would hope that for all of us, Lord, your spirit is at work in us, reminding us and teaching us <coughs> that we do struggle with cold hearts, hard hearts, dull hearing. And the evidence is in. We need you. We need your grace. We need you to be at work in us, transforming us. Help us. Let us not rest this side of glory. Because we see you as worthy. Help us to be instruments in your hands for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.